Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. All right, all right, all right. Here we go, here we go. Another episode of Believe in Horse Racing with Ken Rudolph. I get to be Ken Rudolph again today. Thank you so much for hanging out with us again for episode number eight. We appreciate you uh, downloading this wherever you find your podcast because we are everywhere. We're courtesy of the kids at Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. We're coming to you live from Los Angeles, but all the big action coming up this weekend will be on the other side of the country. We got the Belmont Stakes coming your way. It's a mile and an eighth. It's a little different now, but it's still exciting and there's still money to be made. We'll be talking about how to take the right approach, what horses to look at on that entire card at Belmont Park coming up this weekend. But today, our focal point is not necessarily going to be New York, it's going to be Chicago. We're going to be talking to Don Chatlos Jr., a trainer who's part of a, a legacy, a generation of horsemen. He's going to talk about what it's like to grow up in Chicago and talk about uh, his future in horse racing. Then we'll go to our handicapper. It is Leon Gordon Camps, also from Chicago. He earned the right to come back to Longshot Lounge because he gave us a horse named Scotty Brown about two weeks ago at Belmont Park, and that horse won for fun and paid $11, and everybody was happy. So let's see if we can do that again. So we'll be talking about what's happening in New York and talking about what has happened in Chicago and what it's like to live there. But as we continue moving forward, you know, I was thinking about something today. I was thinking about all the people that are out there that give out their picks or their touts and their handicappers or even the people who are on TV that are paid to give out horses. Look, if you've been doing that job for 20 years, I need for you to have at least five stories of you hitting for at least five figures. That tells me you know what you're doing. If you don't have those five stories, you might want to hit the bricks. We'll get to that some other time. Right now, we're going to settle in and get ready for our first guest. It is Don Chatlos Jr. He's coming up next. But I got to change the tone. Band, give me a beat. Well, all right then. Let's go. Hey, Don Chatlos Jr. is standing by right now. He's our guest. DC, baby, what's happening? How you doing? Good. Everything's good. You know, I'm here in Lexington uh, at Keeneland. Uh, you know, can't get a better place than this. That's true. When did you get a southern accent? <laughs> um, you know, I I always tell people it's kind of a combination of south side of Chicago and I... Uh, you know, because my dad trained horses, so I spent a lot of time in New Orleans, too, as a kid. And I think I get some of it from there. <laughs> your dad was Richard, right? Don. He's the same. Oh, you're Junior. That's right. I'm sorry, Don. Yeah. Yeah. My own Richard is my uncle. That's my dad's brother. Okay. Okay. Wow. You are. So you are born into this. Yeah, my mom's side, too. I, I have an uncle that's training now that's married to Harvey Veneer's daughter, Brian Williamson. Um, yeah. He has, I don't know what they have, 40 horses here in Kentucky. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, let me do that. Let's do that. I kind of want to get your whole background. We're with trainer Don Chatlos, who shook up the world on October 30th, 2004 at Lone Star Park when Singletary won the Breeders' Cup Mile. And Don has been uh, training 
in and out ever since. And um, but I don't even know much about your backstory. But you're born into this, your whole family. Pretty much, um, yeah. I, you know, my dad and my uncles on my dad's side, and then my mom, my mom's side. My uncle trains horses, also who was brought in by my dad, so he was introduced to it um, from my dad. But yeah, this has been a family affair our, our whole life. I've been free labor um, for <laughs> as long from when I was old enough to hold a shank. And so, I don't think I've ever asked you this, and I don't think anyone has ever asked you or you've ever told. What is your racial background? What is what is your family? Okay, so I'm one of these that, you know, that's how everybody, they just look at me and try to guess. And, you know, now because politically correct is so um, in the forefront, you know, yeah. as a kid, this was very tough. And I didn't like telling the story and my family, you know, used to say there's no reason for you shouldn't have to tell the story um, because people were... <laughs> racially insensitive I, I guess I would have to put it yeah. and uh, so okay so I grew up my mom's side of the family is white bread wonder bread as white as you can get to my dad's side of the family now they're Italian but my dad's mom is from Sicily now if you ever want to read about racism well, look the at Moors. what the people of the boot of Italy think about Sicily yeah, the Moors especially Sicily. northern Italy okay so you know, Arabs and the Moors and everybody passed through Sicily. So there's color there. Yes. So that came out in my dad. Now, my dad's not like dark, dark, but, you know, my dad looks different than other dads. Okay. Uh, so, you know, as kids, we grew up, what are you and all the stuff. Now, <laughs> the thing is, is that my dad, and I know a lot of people like to say this, but I, I'm telling you truthfully, my dad was the bad, bad Leroy Brown of the South Side of Chicago. They were terrified of him. <laughs> And so parents knew better than to push it too far because they didn't want him to come knocking at the door. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it, that kind of God blessed him with that because, you know, I, I hate to play the race card like that because I, I can't say that I now not that I've never felt racism. But when you compare it to what my dad had to live through born in 1944, mm -hmm. you know, teenager in the 50s, in his 20 and the 60s. But God blessed him with this brute strength that people were scared of him. So it helped him avoid a lot of those problems. Uh -huh. And uh, so that that's, you know, where we come from. I'm Italian on one side, but you know, if you look up pictures of Sicilians, you'll see, you know, no different than Puerto Rico or Cuba, you know, you have your, you got blonde hair, blue eyes, and then you have dark skin, you know, all the same race. Yeah. Uh, you know, for some reason as humans, we're so worried about the shade that people are, which is ridiculous. So is it safe to say that the monologue before his death in the movie True Romance from the actor Dennis Hopper, which tells the entire story of that, have you ever seen that? I've seen it, but I don't know the exact dialogue you're talking about. So at the, in the, the scene of the movie, Christopher Walken, I do believe, is the, the bad guy. Dennis Hopper is the father of this character named Clarence, who's played by... Um, uh, I forgot the kid's name already. Uh, it'll come to me in a second. Anyway, he's about to die, and he knows that Christopher Walken's gonna kill him, so he wants to get back at him the only way he can. Christopher Walken's character is deep Italian, so he tells the story of the Moors conquering Sicily. I remember this And then now, he tells yeah. him, you got blank blood running through your veins. Yep, and that's it, what he told him, that's right. <laughs> and it enrages Walken, and he kills him. <laughs> But yeah, this opera got I mean, the last laugh. You know, if you 
just even you know googling and reading the stories now of course it, it now has went beyond rate beyond the color of the skin to oh sicilians you know the cosa nostra and started the mafia mm-hmm. and that no no that's not the original embarrassment the original embarrassment is because they were darker than the northern italians it's amazing how far it goes back. By the way, that actor was Christian Slater that I blinked on there, there for a second. Yeah. But um, I still remember that movie, and I think that that whole monologue uh, is kind of one of the reasons why a lot of people respect Tarantino as a writer, because Quentin Tarantino put that in there. Now, it's, that's a whole other conversation that we won't get into, but right. I, I did love the detail of that and, and the accuracy of what Dennis Hopper's character was saying about That's it. They researched that well. (laughs) They did. I'm so glad you shared that with me, man. That answers a lot of questions. But, you know, I heard what you said there about people focusing on the skin color, and and I feel like I want them to because I've always said, look, my experience is different than your experience, and I want you to acknowledge that when you deal with me. Um, Sure. I don't want you to look at me and be like, well, we're all the same. Like, no, we're not. Don't front. We're not. And, and right. you, you built a system that made sure that we weren't. So sure. don't come to me talking that nonsense. I want you to look at me and say, that's a black man right there. And I know his experience is different. And I'm going to talk to him in a manner that he understands that I acknowledge that his experience is different. That's what I'm asking for. Right. You know, and it's funny because interacting with you on Twitter and stuff, you know, at 54 years old, um, you said something just a couple weeks ago about the colorblind thing. And that has always bothered me. People say, you know, because most people that say that just have bad experiences. It's not true what you're saying if you have to say that. Yeah. And you're right. You see people for what they are, but you don't judge them by that. Right. Exactly. Just take that in, acknowledge that, and then continue moving forward and try to, you know, assess the person's character. Uh, sure. But you got to go in there knowing that you're dealing with someone who has a different experience. It's kind of like how I have friends and, you know, I, I, everybody grows up in certain areas. And where I grew up, I, it was very diverse. In fact, the, the, the city that I grew up in is Sacramento, California. And okay. back in the 80s, Sacramento was on the cover of Time magazine as the most diverse city in the country. And that's because we were surrounded by three uh, military bases. So, you know, that's people coming from all over the place getting transferred and so you had everything there but you know i tell a lot lot of my white friends who you know romanticize our upbringing and how we grew up together and played together and i kind of have to ruin their memory by saying yeah we did all that but do you also remember blah 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 right me being chased down the street by guys in the back of a truck yelling nigger at me Uh, my friend having the n-word spray painted on the front of his house you know all these little things and it's amazing how they get so offended they're like you're ruining my memories. I'm like, no, I'm just showing you that that whole thing was different for, for other people. Absolutely. I've been living the same thing. I've, I've lived through the same thing. I, You know, it's funny because sports, to a certain extent, is the great equalizer. You don't, you know, when you, when you play sports and you get involved, you, especially basketball, it's going to be a lot of black guys playing basketball, and those were my friends, especially yeah. my friends that came from the – I moved to the – my parents moved us to the suburbs when I was in eighth grade. One, I, it, you know, tore us out of the city where it was so diverse yeah. to this park forest, which was a great place. It was safe. It was they, that's what they wanted for us, but it wasn't racially diverse like it was in the city. Yeah. And so again, just like you just said, I have friends now that tell stories now that we're in 
you know, their late forties, early fifties. And I'm like, no, it's not how it was because I would show up to these high school parties with two or three of my basketball friends, black guys. And they would literally say to me, you could come in, but they can't right in front of them. Wow. And, and people don't remember that now because we're in a different world now, but I'm like, no, that's how it happened. And that's how I got into the spot that I was in because I grew up on growing up on the South side of Chicago, you know, uh, you know, Chicago has that mafia mentality um, where yeah, that goes back to the daily you family. ride or die with your friends. That's yeah. that's what you do. And I'm not going in if they can't go in. So you kind of draw a line there. Yeah. Which leads into all kind of other stuff. But um, I, I don't know. I think I've been very fortunate, especially, you know, now fast forward into racetrack life that um, I've been involved with people on the racetrack that were very good to me when I could have, you know, ran into some people that probably wouldn't have been as good to me. Yeah, I think that's always important to acknowledge that there are good people out there. And when we're, when we're telling stories and trying to make a point, making our statement, you know, we're not trying to lump everyone into one box. Um, but yeah, the a lot of it does end up being that way for us where we're forced into situations, but we are, we're separated. And, you know, I love... I'm probably the only person on the planet that is not afraid of Twitter. Like, it doesn't even bother me. I don't care what right. you say or do on Twitter. You are not going to affect my life. I just right. don't care enough. But I do love the engagement. And I love the fact that because of social media, I get to see you. You know what I'm right. saying? I get That's to it. see you for what you really are. And your words are what I'm like, oh, well, this person has got some serious depth to him. I did not know this about Don Chatlow's at all. And so I love the fact that it, it draws me in and I get to know you a little bit better and understand where you come from. You kind of, you've been in this game for a long time now and you've been the assistant for Hall of Fame trainer Jerry Hollendorfer. But I felt like there was a period there where you, you kind of backed off of, from racing. Was there a period where you kind of disappeared or what was happening? Well, I, you know, Little Red Feather, you know, we won the Breeders' Cup. We were all on that high. And, you know, there was no follow up to that. You know, I'm, you know, I didn't, I'm not Bob Baffert. You know, I don't, I, the next year we didn't have another Singletary. And then the year after, I have two more. It just didn't happen like that. And, you know, so for Little Red Feather, because they're a syndicate and they have investors to answer to, the only way to keep that going, you know, going was they were going to have to make a trainer change. And, you know, I understood. I, I get it. And, so then I found myself with just a few horses. I, I had horses for Mike Iverone, IEAH, the guys that own Big Brown. Yep. But they weren't really happy with synthetic in California, and they wanted the horses back east. And I didn't want to move east. I didn't have the connections back there like I had in California. I, I just couldn't do it. And so they moved the horses back east. And I found myself really for the first time in my life with no horses and no real job on the track. Wow. And, uh, man, I, I, I didn't know what to do. It was the first time in my life that that had ever happened. So I had to make some decisions and, and think, how could I reinvent myself? How can I start this over and get my – and I, for me, I thought the best way to do it was go back to where it all started. So I went – moved out of Southern California that I love. That's my home. I've been there since I was 19 years old. But I went back to Chicago and – um you know, I was just having a good time seeing family that I hadn't seen because I was in California, I don't know, 27 straight years without wow. only going home a couple times. Yeah. And, uh, 
hooked up with my uncle and my uncle said, look, we got to get you off the couch. You got to come back to work. He had a job, you know, he needed an assistant at that time. And uh, I am telling you, it's the best thing I ever did. It, it was like going back in time, like when I was a kid and, you know, the love mm-hmm. for the game and for the horses um, was revived there. And uh, so I was with him for about a year and a half. And then that's when Jerry came calling. And you know, I always knew I would go back to Southern California. It was just a matter of when. And uh, so that was the perfect opportunity to do that. What was that like, not being able to be around horses for such a, a long period of time? That You know, it, it, it's a lost feeling. I mean, people that are lifers in this game, um, you know, the horses saved my life. I mean, I grew up on the south side of Chicago where there might have been three ways out and two of them weren't good. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I always knew that if I ever got a felony, I would never get licensed at the track or it would be very hard to get licensed. And that really kept me away from all that negativity. And uh, so, you know, when you find yourself in a situation where, you know, you're just out, um, it's hard to explain it. it, it, There's a certain depression that sets in. And, uh, but lucky for me, like you said, being born into it, I knew I still had this ace up my sleeve that I can always go home and mm-hmm. start over again. And and so that despair didn't really set in because I knew there was always that. It's the last card I wanted to play because I didn't, I love Southern California. I didn't want to be, um, but that was, I knew at that time that was the best decision. I love that. That's fantastic. So now here you are, you know, getting back, going in the right direction. The date today is June 16th that we're recording this conversation, but coming up on the 20th, you have some runners that are coming out. And I kind of want to know, what is, do you have a a training style? Do you have things that you adhere to? Um, Like we know that certain trainers, like a Bob Baffert, he gets speed and he's about that. He trains for that. What is it that you, you train for? I, you know, I always think that there's these groups, two groups of trainers, the way I see it is, is, you know, you have the Baffert and the Lucases that, you know, they train for that. They, they triple crown, you know, those two-year-old Breeders' Cup races, they're going to be there. That's, that's what they do. And then there's the Frankel um, side of it where Bobby Frankel was more of a developer. He wasn't going to push him early. He was going to be conservative. If there was a problem, he was going to stop. And yeah. obviously little bumps, you, you stop and you miss your two-year-old year. So now that's gone. And more than likely, you're not going to be on the Triple Crown Trail because you're not going to have enough experience by then. And now, see, there's nothing wrong with the Baffert Lucas style. That's what their clients want. And right. they're really good at delivering to their clients. McDonald's serves hamburgers for a reason. They don't make hot dogs. And that's Baffert and Lucas. They, they cater to what their clients want, and they put them there every year. Now me, I'm more on the conservative side. I, I, you know, I will take my time. I will stop on one. I'll drive owners crazy with that. And uh, but that's just the way I learned, and and uh, you know, it's the way I like to do things. I've stepped on the gas a little more um, with these Larry Best horses because you know they're they're you know he's serving up these monsters, and uh, so you, you know you can't. The last thing you want to do is have a horse's prime pass by in the stall or on the layoff at the farm. 
Um, mm. There's only a certain window with all of these horses. And you just yeah. hope that you tap into that. You know, I'm wondering, and, and I when I ask these questions, I'm not looking for anyone, any names. I'm not looking for you to throw anybody under the bus, but I do have general questions. And my general question is about the owners and and how they kind of dictate the terms. And do you feel like, for lack of a better term, collectively, the owners might be the problem in our industry? Um, you know, the game has changed. So you went from, you know, the early days of a lot of owners didn't even know their horses were in. You know, obviously no internet then, no cellular phones, no nothing. Right. Um, and, you know, they, there was a, a saying that they said it came from Whittingham. I hate to attribute it to him if he didn't really say it, but there, everybody says, it. you know, owners are like mushrooms. You feed them shit and keep them in the dark. That was the old school way. <laughs> well, you won't be in business now if that's the way you do it. These owners are, you know, they are... They get the condition book before you do. And uh, I don't know. It, all owner-trainer relationships are no different than a husband and wife relationship. You have to click with the person you're with, and you have to be on the same page. Um, obviously, um, if Larry Best was hell-bent on winning the Kentucky Derby, I'm probably going to be the wrong guy because I'm going to be calling him and say, hey, we have to stop on this two-year-old or we have to do this. Um, him and I click because he – is spending a lot of money on these horses and he's trying to um make them into broodmares or stallions he you know he's trying to make them worth what he paid for them. yeah that's where you get paid yeah and so he uh you know he goes with the conservative approach and uh doesn't really fight it now you know when you have an owner that's fighting that and you know the trainer's at the barn looking at the horse and like god he wants me to breeze the horse tomorrow but I, i'm looking at him and it's that's not the right thing uh that relationship's not going to last very long i i love that i i'm gonna use that that is fantastic owners are like mushrooms just feed them shit and leave them in the dark that's that used to be the old way that doesn't work anymore <laughs> that does not work that's hilarious. <laughs> that is crazy. So you, you're coming in and, you know, I, I got to say, um, I was super impressed with what you did with, I do believe that horse is Brill. Yeah. Um, Brill came back and you put on the turf. I think Mike Smith jumped aboard and um, I was like, I wasn't expecting it. And mainly because I was like, well, I haven't seen Don Chatlow's in years. Uh, what's he doing? What's right. his horse? What's going on here? And and it really worked out. How rewarding was that for you? Because I was one of the, I think that was the first time we had seen you in Southern California with a horse in a long yeah, time. Yeah, it was. I you know when all this started, you know, last year in New York, and then we came back for the winter, and then that was the first big one. We we had a winter in Del Mar, a nice Philly broker maiden, but the first big one was Brill, and it was very rewarding because um, Brill just you know as brilliant as she was she just had a lot of problems a lot of little things that just held her back you know she ran two more times after that and just didn't duplicate that performance so she's in full to american pharaoh now we you know we weren't going to mess around and try to get her through the whole year she had been through enough um so but no that was a great race mike smith i mean you know 
it was poetry in motion. When you go back and watch that replay, especially the way she kicked home down the stretch, you're like, wow, you got to see how yeah. good that Philly really was. We're in a really critical time, not only in society, but obviously horse racing as well. Um, you know, the last couple of years in horse racing has just been like one thing after another after another. And I think it's just proven that horse racing is the cockroach of all sports. You, you can't possibly kill it. It's impossible. But where do we go from here as a trainer? What do you think we do as an industry? What do we need to do to, to be stronger and more solvent as we continue to evolve? Well, I, you know, I've always said to people, you know, people look at horse racing and, and talk about its demise and how it's dropped off and look at the glasses half empty. I see it as half full because I'm telling you right now, if Microsoft or Coca-Cola or any other company was run the way horse racing was run, they would have been gone a long time ago. And the fact that we're that. still around after all this shows how strong it really is. Now, we might be mm -hmm. on life support now and might not be as strong as we were at one time, but there's still a pulse there. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, look, we got to stop trying to compromise with people that want the demise of horse racing. Whoever gave them a seat at the table didn't know what they were doing. Um, these people don't want compromise. They want us gone. So why are you dealing with them? You don't deal with terrorists. That's the first thing. You got. You just have to stop that and trying every little thing from the whips to all the stuff. First of all, figure out who your core audience is. You know, the gamblers who have poured their heart and soul into this business, any just as much as any trainer or any owner, um, deserve better. They have been overlooked for far too long. We need to start doing things to get them back in the gate. You know, we've done nothing to compete for the gambling dollar. What have we done? We, you know, you go to Vegas and you see what they've done. Just go back just 20 years, 20 years till now. What have they done to get people into Vegas? Now, I understand that's a destination and people go there because it's Vegas, but the core of it is still gambling. Yeah. We are doing nothing to get these people back. And if anything, we're pushing them away. And so we really need to get back to taking care of who our core customers are and worry about them and the rest is just gonna have to settle itself okay and so how do we do that because I've, I've always been trying to figure out i mean obviously there are certain things we can do to uh, embrace the player by getting rid of some of these little penny nickel and dime fees that we hit you with before you even get to the track the poor people man how they even pay all this stuff before they even get in there is just crazy that's the first thing there's no doubt about that you know, you should be ushering them in, you know, it, you know, you got to improve the food at the place. You know, you don't want to feed them anything. A lot of these tracks, hot dogs and sodas, and that's all they have. Um, you know, there's so many things that I'm obviously not a front of the house guy, so I couldn't give you specifics on how exactly to fix that. But, um, it, you know, we really have to step up the competition for that gambling dollar and give people a reason to come to the track. Now, as far as the stars go, you know, horse, the breeding side of this has really changed over the last 15 to 20 years and the horses get retired right away. So, you know, you get fans that get attached to a horse or a couple horses and bam, they're gone after one year. That doesn't help anything either. Um, that's a whole nother conversation. What do you want to accomplish as a trainer? especially this year most come trainers just like, i just want to win one derby i just want to win a breeder's cup 
but what do you want to accomplish this year? Um, you know, because my job is different, you know, I have a private job working for Mr. Best and, and I, you know, he's got his grade ones. He's won a couple grade ones with Chad Brown, Cambier Park won to Queen Elizabeth last fall. Um, you know, he had Instagram won the grade two. He won the best pal with Hollendorfer. I want to get him his Breeders' Cup. I, I, he he never says, you know, that he's focused on one thing. The Derby is one thing that's not really a big deal for him. I think he's already proved that by stopping on Instagram as a two-year-old when he had to. Um, he finished fourth with instilled regard, so he had a taste of it. Um, but I would really like to get him his Breeders' Cup, especially with it being right here at Keeneland. Um, you know, that would be something special. I think you uh, you got the right approach, man. That is definitely for sure. And man, I could talk to you all day. I cannot wait to see you face to face, brother. I cannot wait to see you and shake your hand, give you a pound and a hug, man. I really appreciate sharing everything with me and your journey. And I wish you nothing but the ultimate success, especially this year and beyond. And let's get that Breeders' Cup, man. Get that Breeders' Cup win, all right? Yeah, we'll be trying. Don, appreciate it, buddy. Thanks for your time. I'll see you soon. Ken, thank you. Glad you're back, buddy. Glad you're back. <laughs> thank you, brother. Much love. Here we go. We're going to roll right into Long Shot Lounge here on the Believe in Horse Racing. And we're going to bring back our man. It is Leon Gordon Camps. He gave us Scotty Brown about two weeks ago. We ended up paying $11 at Belmont. That was easy money that day. But we're going to try and do it again. How you doing, brother? I'm doing good, man. I appreciate you. You're bringing me back. Oh, no. You earned it. Um, but actually, this time we're going to do something a little bit different. So... You're from Chicago, and I've always wanted to know just what it's like to grow up in what I consider to be the most amazing, most wonderful, most horrible city in the country. Like, I feel like there's so many amazing things about Chicago, but then there's some things where I'm like, I'm not messing with that. Tell me what it's like. <laughs> you Were you born there? You from there? Born and raised? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> born and raised. Oh, yeah. What are some of the great things about Chicago? Oh my goodness! Well, right now it is the uh, the summertime, and unfortunately, due to to everything that's going on, we can't really get out and enjoy, you know, a lot of the the amenities, the surroundings right now. Uh, um, uh, the joke that I like to always say is that uh, if Chicago had a little bit warmer climate, there would probably be you know, six million people in the city alone. Uh, but because the winters are so harsh, uh, I think that's the reason why uh, when we have three million, which is still a lot, I mean, that's still, the, you know, we're the, the third largest city yeah. in the United States. Yes, sir. Uh, so, and, and this and this is our time. This is kind of like our, our, uh, our highlight time, uh, our show time, which is the summer. And uh, there are so many events, you know, you have uh, Lollapalooza is one of the biggest events. Uh, you have Taste of Chicago, uh, not to mention, you know, a lot of things that go on in just neighborhoods. Uh, Hyde Park is, is probably one of the uh, the best neighborhoods. There's a, uh, 
there's a, a house music picnic where a lot of folks come out and, and have a good time. Uh, there's, uh, you know, you got the Bud Billiken Parade. There, there's just, there's so many events that happen in the city of Chicago and uh, just downtown. You know, you have all of the, the beautiful skyscrapers and all of the other architecture. Uh, so it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful town that has uh, has some blemishes. Yeah, it's it. The, the blemishes are the things that we hear so much about. And you know, I wonder what that is like. Is it like, cause you know, I've never been to Chicago. I haven't had that honor yet. And only thing we hear about Chicago, mainly in the news is violence, but that's not what it's all about. But where does, where is that coming from? Why are we hearing so much about that? Is that real? Is that really happening there? Or is it media overblowing it? It's happening a lot, but it's only used, uh, for political arguments. Uh, you know, a lot of the people who are mentioning the violence don't really care about what's going on because at the end of the day, a lot of it is black on black crime. You know, if I can just be frank, you know, most, <laughs> most white people, especially Republicans, you know, they could care less about black on black crime because most of it is happening in black neighborhoods where white folks aren't there anyway. So, you know, at, we're basically we're killing ourselves. And, you know, it's only used, as I said earlier, it's only used as an argument. I mean, uh, you know, just for a political statement to, to talk about the left or Democrats, whatever you want to call it, they really don't care. It's just set up for, for us to fail. And, and the thing about it is that it's, it all comes from from systemic oppression and systemic racism, something that has plagued black people forever and forever. This is absolutely true. And it, it seems to come up in a conversation. You just mentioned how it's only used as a counter anytime we say or anytime anyone discusses, hey, black lives matter and police brutality and black people are being killed at a higher percentage. And the first thing they will say is, but what about Chicago? And those two things are not the same. When you go to work every day, what is it, do you, do you, if you don't mind me asking, do you walk, do you drive, do you take the bus? Like, how do you get to work every day and what is that like? Oh, I am a uh, proud public transportation user. I take the, uh, it's called the Blue Line. I take the Blue Line to work uh, every day and I work downtown, so. So I'm down there every day. And then what about coming back at night? Is there anything you have to do differently when you're, if, you, if you're coming back in public transportation at night? I mean, you have to keep your head on a swivel because uh, there is, you, you have to be careful because uh, the blue line in particular, so there's the blue line and there's the red line. Those are the two trains in Chicago that run 24-7. And what happens is those two trains, because they run 24 seven, you have a lot of bums uh, or just a lot of homeless people who mm -hmm. sometimes will uh, will sleep on the trains. Well, that's any city, right? That's any city, yeah. Exactly, but just, yeah, with those, those two lines in particular are the ones where you have to really be careful uh, and just, uh, you know, just be aware of your, your surroundings. Uh, but, you know, 
no one's messing with me because I'm, you know, I'm 6'2", 220 pounds. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a tall black man. Ain't nobody messing with me like this. Yeah, you can look like a mark. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you can look like a mark. They can tell. When I, right. I try to tell my, my wife and my son all the time. I'm like, head on a swivel. And when you walk in any place, head on a swivel oh, yeah. and be strong. Don't look weak. Don't look like you're not paying attention. Don't look lost. Don't look confused. Have oh, your yeah. stuff together. Because it oh, yeah, spot mark. Oh, yeah. What's it like at Hawthorne? Like when we back when we used to be able to go to the track, obviously we haven't been able to do that for a while. What is the what is the makeup of the people at the track and, and how do they get along? Hawthorne is uh <laughs> it's a melting pot, man, definitely. Uh you know, there's there's definitely a lot of a lot of us there at Hawthorne. Uh the, the Hawthorne itself is in a um is in a Hispanic uh, area, uh, kind of a Cicero Stickney, mm -hmm. Illinois, which is uh, mainly Hispanic. When you know, I don't know how it is maybe at other parks, but I know at Hawthorne, we all kind of stay in our own little groups. So, you know, you may see a group of black people together. You may see a group of, of white people or a group of Hispanics. You don't really see a lot of um, mixing too mm. much and you know i'm not saying that to say that's a bad thing i'm just telling you just what, what i see right right just just from just from uh you know a standpoint of being comfortable now of course you know i'm there i'm i'm trying to hang out with whoever is tied and whoever is picking the right ones <laughs> I, you know i'm <laughs> right you don't care about that i care about only color you right. see is green you're like i don't care exactly exactly you get it and that's the kind of thing that i thought the track was about right like we don't care who you are and where you come from we're all here trying to do the same thing you have some information that i need let's hang out let's do this together um and i often see that when i go to the track it is a microcosm of society like you said a melting pot everything is there everybody mm -hmm. and everything from every walk of life is at the track every day so I always feel like it's really interesting just to kind of go take a look at the people and, and get a get a pulse for that community. And you can do that just by going to the track. Um, well, you're not going to have a chance to get to the track anytime soon, um, but we can still play. Thank goodness we can still play from home. And we got some big stuff coming up this weekend. Man, it's, the, it's not supposed to be happening in this order, but we got the Belmont Stakes and a whole great card coming up from New York, man. And I kind of want to get into that because it is... It is still Long Shot Lounge, baby. And you got to give me a price for anything that you were feeling coming up this weekend. As I mentioned before, uh, Leon gave us Scotty Brown, who paid $11 a couple weeks back at Belmont Park. And that was just, oh, Hercules, Hercules. That was glorious. All right. What you got now? Yeah, that's the, I, you know, I hope I'm saying it right. The the Pennine Ridge or the, the Pennine Ridge. Yeah, go for it. I can't even see the, the full name of it. I never worry about that stuff till I go on air. <laughs> until i'm going on the air but yeah it's like great too that's um a mile on the main track at belmont race four saturday exactly so i'm looking at number five van z with uh with kendrick carmouche and uh, you know hopefully at this point kendrick carmouche would have won uh, you know i'm really rooting for him to uh he has he's a good rider but he still has not won a grade one yet 
and I'm hoping that he does win, uh, finally gets a chance winning a grade one in the Woody Stevens. Kendrick Carmouche in the Woody Stevens on the three, and then that's in race two. Mm -hmm. Then you come right back in race exactly. four with Kendrick Carmouche on the five. Vanzi, who is a price 12 to one on the morning line. And then, because everybody's got to have one, race 10 on the card is a little thing they call the Belmont Stakes. And uh, that's a really interesting race. And where are you going to go in there? The one that I am looking at here is going to be the number two, Sol Volante. Yeah. I'm looking. I like the fact that that the trainer is sticking with uh, Luca Panici uh, after going to Florent Giroux in the Tampa Bay Derby. And uh, he went back to Luca a couple weeks ago, and they won an optional claim there. And then also, too, because of the fact that they're willing the horse back, uh, this is going to be, what is this, about literally, what, 10 days later? Exactly. So I feel like if, if they're bringing them back that quick, they must feel like they got something there. So I'm looking for... So Valente to have a uh, have a close, have a late Alex of Fleet like kick. All right, all right, there it is. Sole Valente is uh, nine to two in the morning line, but I, I I have a funny feeling he might float up a little bit. He might float up a little bit. You might get some additional value on there. And Luca Panici was actually I think he was hurt, so they had to go with Florent Giroux in that Tampa Bay Derby. And then now that Luca is back, uh, I love the fact that the connections went back to him because he's not really a big name experienced jockey, right? I mean, you're coming into right. these triple crown races and they all go and try to find, everyone's trying to find a Joel Rosario and a Johnny V and a Mike Smith, but there's nothing wrong with sticking with the jockey that's been here the whole time. It's the same thing that's happening with Tis the Law. They're sticking with Manny Franco and I love that. Manny Franco's never had yeah. a triple crown, like a big chance to, to run in these races. So that's going to be cool. All right, man, we're going to go to the, we're going to go to the windows with those three horses. We're going to put that out in the ether. Put that out in the world coming up on Saturday. Um, Leon, is it okay if I call you Leon now? You want me to still call you Gordon? <laughs> no, I mean, you say it right, man. So you you, you got permission, man. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> all right, brother. That is Leon Gordon Camps. He is our brother from Chicago, Illinois. And uh, he's second time here in Longshot Lounge because when you pick a winner, you get to come back. All right, player. Hey, brother, you be safe out there. You be good. And uh, we'll get this money coming up this weekend, and we'll check in with you again later, all right? Sounds good, man. I'm always here for you. All right, and that'll do it for this edition of Believe in Horse Racing. I want to thank our guest, Don Chatlos Jr. from Chicago. And I also want to thank our guest, Leon Gordon Camps from Chicago. This has been Believe in Chicago Horse Players as we uh, wrap it up this week. Thank you again for checking in with us. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe and pick it up every single week as we continue this conversation. I am Ken Rudolph. Don't forget, let's get this money together. And I'll see you guys next time. Peace. Thank you for listening to Believe. 
You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.